kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend. I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Hey! Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel Man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a home. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. For those who are new to the show, we discuss pop culture of the past, you know, all the cool stuff that younger people have missed out on, as well as stuff that you simply should know. And in the wheelhouse of things that you should know are horror movies. Obviously, when you want to get a person into something that you know they'll like, it's best to start them young. But where do you start with horror, considering the fact that there is so much out there that is not appropriate for kids? Well... We at Then Is Now have come up with a special guide to help you help that young person in your life get into horror movies, TV shows, books, and more. This is the first part of what should be a long sub-series on the show in which filmmaker Chris Esper and I will discuss what path to take when getting someone into horror movies. Our journey is going to begin with the Universal Horror Classics in what we've named the Universal Primer. In order to enjoy the classic Universal monsters, you may need to introduce a young person to the fact that these movies are in black and white. I know my kids are totally comfortable with black and white simply because I raised them on black and white shows and movies. We suggest that on a non-horror level, perhaps starting your kids on The Little Rascals and The Three Stooges would be a great way to get them familiar with the concept that not everything has to be in color. And then when you branch off into the Universal Monster movies, you can show them how black and white has been used to achieve mood and atmosphere in scary films. So sit back and enjoy what promises to be a fun and informative episode on part one of the Universal Horror Primer. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Food fight! Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo-hoo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. 
Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're gonna have recess all the time. Woo! Go! Play and have fun now! Okay, folks, get ready for a fun discussion. In this primer on helping to get people into horror movies, we're starting with the Universal Classics. Long before Marvel Studios created a cinematic universe with interconnected movies, Universal had already done just that with their monster movies. Most of their main monster characters, including Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman, had crossed over in several sequels, sometimes lovingly referred to as monster mashups. What we're going to do in this special series is, rather than discussing each Universal film in order of theatrical release, we're going to study the sequels to each of the monster movie franchises in their particular order. As I mentioned in the intro, I talked about Dracula from 1931 in Episode 7, and today, filmmaker Chris Esper joins me as we dive into the Dracula sequels, Dracula's Daughter from 1936, Son of Dracula from 1943, and House of Dracula from 1945. Welcome back, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me back. Glad to have you here. Okay, so now uh, we did have the spoiler disclaimer at the beginning. So listeners, this is your last chance to pause the show and go and watch them first. Okay, so Chris, what has your experience been with the Universal Horror Classics, in particular Dracula and the sequels that we're going to discuss today? So I've seen the original Dracula probably twice or three times prior to this discussion. Uh, I remember first seeing it in my early 20s I want to say um, and uh, it wasn't always my favorite of the universal classics I, I did highly enjoy it I, I think I was always more attracted to the Invisible Man and Frankenstein for whatever reason but I Dracula I always uh, did enjoy um, I've also seen uh, Nosferatu of course the um, 1922 version and uh, you know that film is um, masterful as well uh, yes. This was my first time actually seeing the sequels at all, uh, so uh, this was new for me. But um, as I mentioned to you um, off, um, you know, um, off this recording, I actually did watch the original again just uh, for context to go back to it, and uh, I think I liked it a lot more this time than I did originally. But uh, the sequels, never seen them before. This is this was brand new for me, so. Uh, it was very interesting to compare and contrast and, you know, sort of see the origins of a cinematic universe as we're so used to today with, with the Marvel Universe, as you mentioned. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I'd seen most of these when I was a kid since they were always shown at, you know, various times a day on different TV channels. Um, but as far as I can tell, Creature Double Feature in Boston on Channel 56, which is now the CW, did not play any of these classic ones. But I definitely remember seeing Bride of Frankenstein on a show called Chiller in the mid-70s, which was on Boston's Channel 5. And, um, you know, like I said, a lot of them were just around the dial on different channels. But, you know, when I was a kid, we always talked about, at school, we talked about Lugosi and Karloff and Chaney and... You know, between that and the books and magazines that I grew up with, the Universal Classics were always present in my life. But as to the films that we're going to discuss today, growing up, I never really had a high opinion of them. But that's kind of changed, and we'll get into that when we t discuss each film. 
Um, but I did watch them on the Dracula Legacy Collection, which I have, and the, the quality was very nice. Mm. So, Chris, do you want to briefly touch upon the first Dracula movie just to set the stage for the sequels? Sure. Um, so, of course, the original Dracula is with uh, the amazing Bela Lugosi, um, and, uh, you know, it kind of started the lore of of what became a classic character, um, and essentially you have a story that revolves around this uh, this creature that is uh, new in town and uh, is uh, biting off the flesh of those around him and thereby turning them into uh, turning them into I guess uh, lack of a better word I guess like zombies if you will uh, you know and I, you could argue Dracula is uh, you know in in some way or another a zombie of sorts although he's a vampire but uh, I digress right. but in any case uh, so you essentially have that classic classic story and of course it came from Bam Stoker's novel which I have not read I have yet to read it but uh, you know and the interesting thing about the original Dracula is that uh, Bela Lugosi had already played Dracula on stage, and originally, from what I understand, uh, Lon Chaney Sr. was supposed to play Dracula in the movie originally, but then he had died of throat cancer, and then Bela Lugosi got the role. He was so enthusiastic about playing the role that he took a pay cut to play this part, only getting $500 a week, which, if you think back to that period, that's, you know, that, of course, that's not a lot of money, but it was a lot less compared to some of the other actors, and he was so enthusiastic that he jumped at the chance uh, to do it. At the same time, the Spanish version was being filmed simultaneously with the Bela Lugosi version, which I thought was very fascinating. They basically shot both movies with the same sets simultaneously, different actors, different cast, but I thought that was really neat. Right, right. The Spanish crew would come in and they'd, they'd shoot it at night after the, the main crew was done in the daytime. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. And, you know, uh, the novel itself was still wildly popular back then, which is, I think, what kind of helped with the success. Sort of like today when you have a book that's really popular and it gets made into a movie, everybody wants to see it. Yeah, exactly. I, I rewatched it myself and there's a few scenes that I, I just wanted to point out that I thought were really good. First of all, Lugosi's acting was so good in here. And the scene where... He's with uh, Van Helsing, who, by the way, in this movie, he's Van Helsing with a V-A-N, not Von Helsing, V-O-N, that we'll find in a later film. Right. He shows Dracula this little box that has a mirror in it, and Dracula slaps it out of his hand, and you could see the the change in his expression. Then he he, kind of calms down, and then he leaves, and um, you hear him, like, well, what happens is he leaves, and um, Jonathan Harker says... He says, "Did you see the, the you know the look on his face? He looked like a wild animal." And then he runs over to the to the doorway where Dracula left, and he claims to see a huge dog running across the yard. And Van Helsing says, "Or did it look like a wolf?" So that sort of sets up one of the first things then in movie lore that vampires can turn into wolves. You know, we they already right. kind of established that he could turn into a bat at the beginning. Right. Yep. And. Uh... There's a lot of great scenes such as that, and um, you know, I think one of, I, and you know, what I think one of the interesting things when I first saw it was the fact that, despite the, despite the lore of the character and despite all that he does, we never actually see him kill anybody. It always fades to black before we right. even see anything. I thought that was. Uh, I mean, by today's standards, I think many contemporary audiences might find that very underwhelming. I know I did to a certain extent when I first saw it, but I've come to appreciate that technique because of the censorship of the time, I would guess. But also, I think it adds more to the suspense uh, of it. You know, it's the same kind of thing that we would see, 
years later with a movie like Jaws, where, of course, it was a different circumstance, but you barely saw the monster, and that's sort of the same concept here, and I've always appreciated that about this, about this picture. Right, and um, Lugosi's Dracula didn't even have fangs in this. No, did not. And uh, the, the key feature of Lugosi's Dracula, I would say, are the eyes, uh, which uh, the cinematographer on this, he used a pencil light to enhance the eyes, uh, any kind of close-ups, where that's why the eyes look so bright and uh, in any kind of close-up, and I thought that was just beautiful. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. His acting is just so good. I mean, he's so expressive with his eyes. Oh, yes. One of the scenes I really enjoyed was when Van Helsing, uh, Dracula's trying to hypnotize Van Helsing, and Van Helsing manages to resist and drives him off with a crucifix. And it's funny because I had forgotten about that scene, and when I rewatched it, I was I was shocked. I was like, "Oh, I forgot about that." Yeah, I, did I too. just loved yep. that, like the the good versus evil, the willpower. Yes, and also, also the the religious undertones that that the film carries, I think, is very fascinating as well. As long as well as uh, the the sexual undertones that this has. I mean, if you think about it, Dracula is kind of a very seductive character. Uh, to right. the, to those that he attack uh, that he attacks and you know uh, there was actually I, again I haven't read the book but I as from what I understand in the book there that more that sexuality undertone or religious undertone is a lot more prominent uh, and in fact is one of the main reasons that a lot of this happens is taking out taking the innocence out of uh, you know those that he uh, preys upon if you will. Right, that's true. I haven't read the book myself, but yeah, I've I've heard that as well. Mm -hmm. Now, would you agree that uh, as a character, Jonathan Harker was pretty much useless in this film? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just really—I don't know. There was almost no point in having him in the story, which they changed around because in the book, I believe Harker's the one that goes to Dracula's castle at the beginning, and he's he ends up he leaves, but like. Um, He's sort of, he meets Dracula first. He's a realtor, I think, isn't he? And he's supposed to be selling Dracula right. uh, place in England. Yes. So that was interesting how they changed it here. Now, um, uh, what's his name? Dwight Fry was awesome as Renfield. I thought he played uh, he, he played the insanity with Glee. Oh, he was great. And also, um, uh, I think we'd be remiss as well if we didn't mention him. We're probably going to get to him. But uh, uh, Edward Van uh, Salad as, uh, as Van Helsing was yes. excellent. Uh, probably my one of my favorite characters in the whole film. Absolutely, mine too. And he definitely sets the stage for Van Helsing's to come in the movies, sure. like Peter Cushing in the Hammer films. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, one other scene I wanted to just mention also was that the great long shot of Dracula and Mina and Renfield on the stairs. And Dracula thinks that Renfield has kind of brought the others with him because they were following him, which was Van Helsing and Harker and all them. And so Dracula's pissed, and he goes after him, but it's, like, very slowly. Yes. And he just moves menacingly towards him and then tosses, you know, breaks his neck and tosses him down the stairs. And that, I was not only impressed by just how they did, did it mostly in a long shot, but just how visceral it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of that, too, is a testament to... Um uh, Todd Browning, the director, who, of course, is probably one of the great um, filmmakers of that period, having also done one of my other favorite movies, Freaks, which uh, which came a year after this one, and that's an equally great picture. 
Yes, I, 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 you know, honestly, I can't watch that. I've seen it <laughs> once when I was younger, and it disturbed me so much I could never ever watch it again. But I respect it for what it is. <laughs> it's a great movie, but it it's, is. I just can't watch it. <laughs> oh man! So yeah, so yeah, Todd Browning and uh, Bela Lugosi were supposed to return for the sequel, and it was going to be a direct uh, story from it. And that didn't work out because they just couldn't. I think Lugosi wanted more money. Right. And then they had issues with, um, it was kind of sort of based on a chapter that had never been published until later on from the book Dracula. They had trouble with Bram Stoker's uh, widow. They had trouble ah. with Bram Stoker's widow and she she wanted more money too. And I think Lugosi wanted more money and there was some creative differences and Universal was getting worried about the, the censors. So it just never happened the way it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening is the film that we're now going to discuss, which is Dracula's Daughter from 1936. The castle! Dracula! He's come back! Sandra, look at me. What do you see in my eyes? You like jewels, Lily? These are very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. I... weak, Dr. Golf, growing weaker. All your skill cannot help her now. She's under a spell that can be broken only by me. Or death. I am Dracula's daughter. Dracula's daughter begins a few moments after Dracula ends. Count Dracula has just been destroyed by Professor Von Helsing. Von Helsing is arrested by two Whitby policemen, Sergeant Wilkes and Constable Albert. Van Helsing is sent by the Whitby police to Scotland Yard, where he explains to Sir Basil Humphrey that he indeed did destroy Count Dracula, but because he had already been dead for over 500 years, it can't be considered murder. Instead of hiring a lawyer, Van Helsing enlists the aid of a psychiatrist, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, who was once one of his star students. Sergeant Wilkes leaves the Whitby jail to meet an officer from Scotland Yard at the train station. Meanwhile, Dracula's daughter, Countess Maria Zaleska, enters the jail and mesmerizes Albert with her jeweled ring and with the aid of her manservant Sandor, steals Dracula's body from the Whitby jail and after tossing salt on the pyre, ritualistically burns Dracula's body, hoping to break her curse of vampirism. However, Sandor soon begins to discourage her, telling her that all that is in her eyes is death. She soon gives in to her thirst for blood. The Countess resumes her hunting, mesmerizing her victims with her exotic jeweled ring. After a chance meeting with Dr. Garth at a society party, the Countess asks him to help her overcome the influence she feels from beyond the grave. The doctor advises her to defeat her cravings by confronting them, and the Countess becomes hopeful that her will plus Dr. Garth's science will be strong enough to overcome Dracula's malevolence. The Countess sends Sandor to fetch her a model to paint. He sees a pretty young woman, Lily, and follows her onto a bridge. The woman pauses at the railing looking despondent. 
Sandor promises her food, warmth, and money. She, hesit she hesitates, but Sandor explains that he seeks her as a model for his mistress. Lily returns with Sandor. Countess Zaleska initially resists her urges, but then succumbs and attacks her. Lily survives the attack and is examined by Dr. Garth through hypnosis. She reveals enough information to let Garth figure out that it was Countess Zaleska that had attacked her, but suffers heart failure and dies. The Countess gives up fighting her urges and accepts that a cure is not possible. She lures Dr. Garth to Transylvania by kidnapping Janet Blake, his secretary whom he has a playfully antagonistic relationship with, but now realizes that he cares for her. Zaleska intends to transform Dr. Garth into a vampire to be her eternal companion. Arriving at Castle Dracula in Transylvania, Dr. Garth agrees to exchange his life for Janet's. Before he can be transformed, Countess Zaleska is destroyed when Sandor shoots her through the heart with an arrow as revenge for her breaking her promise to make him immortal. He takes aim at Dr. Garth, but is shot dead by a Scotland Yard policeman who, along with Van Helsing, have followed Dr. Garth from London. So this one, I have to say, walking into this, this one was always one of my least favorite of the Dracula sequels. Really? Yeah, and I think it's because I I just didn't get it or I didn't find it very thrilling. You know, I even watched it a few months ago on Svenguli, and it might have been the fact that he interrupts it quite a bit and I had my three-year-old grandson with me and he was interrupting me. They may, may have colored my opinion of the movie when I saw it that time. But upon this viewing, man, I got to say, I was really blown away by it and mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot. There was a lot of subtext here that I'd oh, never yeah. seen before. Yeah, I, I would say that this one was my favorite of the sequels. Um, nice. I, I thought it was um, the most thrilling. I thought the acting was top-notch. I like the I like the fact that it begins where it left off, uh, and it basically continues the story. I like the other two, which are total departures. Uh, they're not bad movies, but they're just total departures. This one I was the most caught up with out of, out of the three. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about the cast and crew before we really dive into the story itself. You've got director Lambert Hillier. He's got 168 credits, most of which are westerns, but he also did the movie The Invisible Ray, uh, the same year, 1936, same year as this film. Mm -hmm. And he did the um, the Batman serial from the 40s. Ah. And then he mostly did TV shows at the end of his career. Now, this movie was written by Garrett Fort. And his um, script writing highlights include uh, the original Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Devil Doll. And I thought that was kind of cool that he was the guy that wrote Dracula because that's I think that's what makes this movie work is because he sort of was coming at it knowing already what he had done and, you know, how could he expand this universe, so to speak. Sure. So then in our cast, we've got Otto Kruger, who plays Dr. Jeffrey Garth. I thought he was great here. I thought he yes. was very charismatic and engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, he started acting in 1915. His last film was in 65. He was 51 year old, years old here, but I didn't think he looked it. No, I didn't think so either. I'm surprised not that I hear you say that. Yeah, yeah. I was very surprised when I found that out. And some of the highlights of his career would be Treasure Island with Jackie Cooper in 1934. He was also in 1945's Wonder, Wonder Man with Danny Kaye. And he was in the Hitchcock film, saboteur in 1942 ah, wow i'm gonna have to go rewatch that yeah likewise yeah so what did you think of him here i really enjoyed his performance here uh i thought that um i i just thought he gave an all-around uh solid performance and he was wonderful to watch yeah yeah he was good and then of course we have gloria holden who plays countess maria zaleska yes dracula's daughter she's she's so beautiful but she's she also is. 
chilling and deadly. <laughs> oh yeah, without a doubt. Yep, and uh, she was as uh, she was uh, to the according to the research I I did. Uh, she almost didn't want to do this role because she saw her Bo Lugosi struggle to get typecast, uh, and uh, so she was very reluctant uh, in taking on this role. Really, I didn't know that. Yes, uh, and. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly convinced her, but, you know, in a way that sort of works because her character is very reluctant to act on her urges. So that almost sort of works in that respect. That does. That does. I guess the film she did the following year in 1937 was The Life of Emile Zola, and that she got some acclaim for. Right. So she probably was able to break the typecasting in a way that Lugosi couldn't. Sure. And then one other film to note that she did was she did The Corsican Brothers with Douglas Fairbanks in 1941. So she had a pretty decent career going for herself. Now we've got Marguerite Churchill as Janet Blake. She was also in 1936's The Walking Dead with Boris Karloff. No relation to the TV series. Sure, now. yes. Um, I liked her. I thought she was really fun and cute here. And her chemistry with Otto Kruger as Garth was really good. Yeah, no, I really liked her here, and uh, of course, um, the chemistry that she has with uh, with the Countess, uh, of course, is uh, terrific. There's a lot of undertones there, which we'll get to, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed her performance as well. Yeah, she was good. Then we've got, of course, Irving Pitchell as Sandor. Now, he was excellent here. Yes. He he was so creepy and sinister, and, and um, you know... He was in, even though he was an actor that was in a lot of B movies, he was also a director. And his really? first film, yeah, his first film was 1932's The Most Dangerous Game, which, if ah. you listeners haven't seen that, you've got to see that movie. Have I, you seen that one? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, you got to see it. It's very good. It's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's based on the book of the same story, which is basically this guy decides he's bored with hunting animals and he wants to hunt humans. You know what? Wait, I you know I've heard of this movie actually because I believe he co-directed that with um, with uh, Ernest uh, Shoshak who had who had done King Kong with uh, with uh, Marion Cooper. Oh okay yeah. okay yeah it's, it's interesting because I only saw it on his credit that it was just him but yeah that makes sense you know yeah and he just gives a, a really underplayed performance here as, he does. as Sandor and also our listeners should know. Uh, that he directed a 1950 movie called Destination Moon, which is a, is oh, a yep. classic Heard science fiction yep. film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so finally, we've got... Well, not finally, we've got a few more cast members, but of the big cast members, we've got Edward Van Sloan as Professor Von Helsing. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said, in this movie, for some reason, they spelt it Von with a V-O-N. Yes. And I watched it with the subtitles. I, I always watch things with subtitles these days just because... Sometimes I, I hear, like, it catches things that I didn't necessarily hear. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, you get to see character names. That actually helps me with the character names, is watching. Because it'll say the character's name before the dialogue sometimes. And it, I'm like, oh, okay, that's who that is. And it was spelling Von Helsing, V-O-N. Yeah. Um, he, of course, reprises his role from the first movie, picking up where he left off from Dracula. He was also Dr. Waldman in Frankenstein and Dr. Muller in The Mummy. He's a fan favorite, and uh, I think, like I said before, he's the template from which all succeeding Van Helsings were portrayed in the movies. Without a doubt, yeah. And I mean, you know, here, here I found his character to be a, uh, to have a lot more subtext. And there's an interesting plot line here, where 
you know, uh, it's questioned if he is indeed telling the truth, if he's innocent, if he's not, if he is going crazy, is he not? I thought that I, I thought that was a great addition uh, to the character. Yes, absolutely. And because he's just, yeah, like we know he's not crazy. Sure. But it's great how in the movie, you know, they, there's it's brought into question and he's trying to defend himself without sounding like an idiot. Right, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, well, there's a great dialogue, dialogue exchange at the beginning of the movie where... You mentioned it before where he's saying, well, no, he's been dead for 500 years. And the police are just like, what? You know, and uh, there's right. there. And like, I, I really enjoyed that dialogue, that dialogue exchange because it really set the stage for what was to come. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then we uh, just to round out the cast, we got E.E. E. Clive as Sergeant Wilkes. And uh, people may remember him as the Burgermeister from Bride of Frankenstein. And he was also in The Invisible Man as Constable Jaffers. Then we've got Hallowell Hobbs as Hawkins, Nan Gray as Lily. Billy Bevan as Constable Albert, Hedda Hopper as Lady Esme Hammond, uh, Claude Allister as Sir Aubrey, Gilbert Emery as Sir Basil Humphrey from Scotland Yard, and Edgar Norton as Hobbes, Sir Humphrey's butler. So, like we said, the movie picks up where Dracula leaves off. Renfield's dead on the floor, and Van Helsing, uh, now called Von Helsing, has staked Dracula. And we get a quick glimpse of Dracula in the coffin, which I found out was a wax dummy. Yes, because they obviously couldn't get Lugosi for this. Sure. So, but that worked. But that was yeah. funny because getting back really to Dracula, one thing I wanted to mention, the original film, I thought the ending for Dracula was a little anticlimactic because we don't actually see him get staked. It's It happens off screen. Yeah, I kind of felt that way too, actually. Yep. Yeah, I felt like the movie just ended. So in this, it, I think, I almost think the writer was kind of making up for it by showing us Dracula with the stake in his heart. Yes, so I, I liked that scene. And then, um, you know, the cops arrive, they get Van Helsing. And I thought it was a funny little scene with the cops where the two of them ha are in the station and the two dead bodies are in the other room. Neither one of them wants to watch it. But Sergeant, so, I'm, I'm sorry, neither one of them wants to watch the bodies. But Sergeant Wilkes pulls rank and makes Constable Albert stay and guard them while he goes off to meet the Scotland Yard guy. Yeah. Which was that was kind of a funny little scene. I've seen some criticism of Constable Albert being the comic relief and having the Cockney accent, but I I thought he was fine. I didn't have a problem with his character. Yeah, no, I I didn't have a problem either. I thought all that worked nicely. And it's, it's funny too. What what kind of compels the sergeant to leave is they see something moving in the dirt because they've got Dracula's body in the coffin, and then they've got um, Renfield's body. And there's like something under the dirt moving and they think it might be a rat, but for whatever reason, it creeps the sergeant out and he just takes off. He's like, yeah, you're in charge. I'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> so then Maria shows up and she uses her ring to sort of to hypnotize Albert. And if you notice, that ring is worn on her wedding ring finger. Interesting. Did you catch that? No, I didn't catch that, actually. Yeah, yeah, and we'll come back to it later on because we see the ring um, come off and on and off her finger a couple times. Um, but then when Scotland Yard finally shows up after she's she's come and gone, Albert's dead and Dracula's body is gone. And what's great, I, what I loved about this scene was you could hear the wolf in the distance and then we cut to Maria in... Well, actually, we I think we cut to the, the woods... And we see Sandor, and you still hear the wolf howling, and then the camera pans to her as if the howling was coming from her. Yes. So that definitely sort of it ties in with Dracula as well, with the first movie where 
he could turn into a wolf when with I believe she probably did too. Yeah. Yep. That, yeah. That was, um, <clears throat> yeah, that was my first thought as well. I, at first, um, I think when I first saw it, I was like, at first when I saw it, I, I was, uh, thinking, Oh wait, Oh wait a minute. There's wolf uh, uh, because I had forgotten that whole thing about, uh, that they could turn into wolves. I hadn't thought about that. I'm usually, you know, under the thought that they turn into bats, you know, when they want to, uh, uh, when they want to get away, but uh, I had forgotten about the wolf part. But then it, it was a nice callback to the original movie after I had watched it. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And um, so she she burns, she salts the body and burns it, sort of like um, like they do in Supernatural. And she's she feels relieved. She feels that by destroying Dracula's body, it frees her of the curse of vampirism and allows her to be normal and live a normal life. And from what I've, from my research, there's some subtext here because, you know, back then being homosexual was considered a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. So then therefore, if she had these, which we'll, we'll, you know, discuss as they come, she has these lesbian tendencies, then maybe she thinks herself not normal as a character. So if she could free herself from Dracula's curse, there's a double meaning where she's not only a normal human, but she's a normal and straight human. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I think. Uh, I think many audiences who watch who watch us today, they may appreciate that. While at the same time, they may they may find that part of it a bit offensive because of the subtext. But I mean, I saw it as I saw it as very, uh, still very timely and. Uh, you know, and if anything, it uh, uh, it added it added just another layer to the story. Absolutely, and I don't think anybody should be offended by this. I don't think so either. Because, no, be, because you have to take these movies in the context from when they were made. Sure. And there's no way an average audience would have accepted that if if it was very overt. I mean, it would take what another twenty, thirty years for Hammer to do the the Vampire Lovers, and then really bring that out there. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Like I don't think you could make this movie the exact same way today, uh, because of that implication. But I think in any event, if you look at it as you said in the context during the period from which it was made, it works beautifully. And absolutely, you know. And I I thought that was a, you know, terrific thing. And it's interesting when you look at vampire movies today, you know, such as. Um, I hate to use this as an example, but Twilight, you know, it it, it, it doesn't even hold a candle uh, to this kind of thing because, uh, because there, there's just more to this one than what we see today. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And these vampires do not sparkle, audience. Just so you know, no, they do not. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> so then, Maria's playing the piano, thinking she's free, and she's she's hearing the music of life and birds. And Sando is shooting her down, and he's going, no, it's about death and bats. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, totally, like, he's totally just shoots her down and almost tries to ground her in reality by saying, it doesn't work that way. Just simply killing Dracula is not going to cure you, you know? And then she finally just sort of, I think she gets a little irritated, and she goes out, and she ends up killing a drunk guy. I think maybe thinking, trying to test it to see if she still had the, the bloodlust, Yes. And then she so she kills a drunk guy out in the alley or whatever and comes back home. And this I thought was interesting. Sandor is sitting up, probably waiting for her all night long, just sitting there in a chair. And they sort of have, uh, well, it sort of reminded me of a spouse waiting. You know, the other spouse has gone out to, for drinks. Yeah. And the, the, the other spouse is at home, angry, 
waiting for them to come home. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No. And and you know and and she's probably drunk off blood, if you will. <laughs> and, uh, right. Yeah. You know. And and uh, but again, that's where we talked about before about the nice. Um, you know about the nice chemistry that these two characters had that comes out beautifully in that scene when she does come home right and in this scene before she gets into her coffin she gives him her coat and she takes off her ring and hands it to him yeah and i thought that was interesting i mean i could see the coat but why why would you take the ring off right. unless it was just large and unwieldy or I, I didn't quite get that yeah so then we've got this party that's going on and uh, this is where you know maria kind of shows up late which i thought was interesting um, first, you know, there's this painting that the partygoers are kind of talking about, and the hostess tells them that Mary is the artist. Oh, this is by Countess Zaleska. And then she shows up, and she goes, the hostess goes up to her and goes, people are dying to meet you. <laughs> and she just gives her this look like, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> and, and then she's offered wine, and she gives the classic Dracula response. I never drink wine. Yes. Which that blew me away. I was like, "Oh, what yep. a nice callback!" Yep, yeah, so well, cool. Well, yeah, this whole movie is filled with that, which I thought was great. Um, how, you know, how it does call back to those things, and it's still drawing the connection between the original and um, and this one. Right. Yep. Right. And when when Janet first sees her, I think even from across the room, and Garth is kind of sort of enamored by by Maria. Uh, Janet says, "You know, she's she's dangerous looking." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and she was. She they was. cut to her, and she was very dangerous looking, which was cool. Yeah, because I think too, what was kind of cool about that is back then you really didn't have many dangerous female characters. No, yeah, no, nope, you didn't. I think that's what makes it work because, because in a time when you didn't have them, something like that is unpredictable. Right. So Maria meets up with Garth at the party, and it's purely by chance, and finding out that she's a therapist, she thinks he can cure her, and he's like, yeah, you know, come on down to see me. So we cut to, like, the next day or so, um, and we get this cool scene with Janet and Garth, because I think, I think Janet is, um, she's too smart for him, mm-hmm. that, that, that's why she annoys him. <laughs> because she's the half of his brain that has to remember all the important things like meetings and all that stuff. Sure. So, kind of like me and my wife. <laughs> it's like, I have to worry about monster movies right, and she's got to right. worry about the bills. <laughs> and that's sort of the relationship they had. And I thought that kind of worked. And then Garth goes and visits uh, Maria in her apartment. And he does happen to notice that there are no mirrors. And oh, yes. When he comes back and tells that to, um, to Janet, here's a funny line where he says, um, I've never been in a woman's apartment that didn't have didn't less have than mirrors. 20 mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> so the, one of the things I thought was really cool about uh, the Maria and Sando relationship, too, was that even though it seemed like a husband-wife maybe sort of kind of situation, he was, he was definitely the provider because he not only was this ghoul that watched over her in the daytime, but he took care of her needs did everything for her, even to bringing her victims. Right. And, you know, she's been told by Garth, like, he gives her an analogy of, like, she doesn't quite spell out what her issue is, but she's, she's we know that she doesn't want to be a vampire. Which, again, that kind of sets it apart from the original, because Lugosi's Dracula was all for it. He oh, yeah. He was evil. And she doesn't want any part of that. 
And so he kind of uses, Garth uses an analogy to alcoholism, saying basically, you know, if we've got an alcoholic, we sit him in a room surrounded by alcohol bottles. And the goal is to just resist and see if you have the willpower to do it. So he tells her to do the same thing, face the addiction and see if she can resist. And Mm -hmm. I think that's another, I didn't actually come across this in my, um, in my research on the movie, but it occurs to me as I'm, as I'm saying this right now, that there's another subtext here too, not really a subtext, more so a theme of addiction. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. That it takes it. it, it, Wow. I hadn't even thought of this before, but it takes the whole vampire thing and kind of turns it on its ear from just being an evil monster to an addiction and, and an affliction as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think some of the best, um, um, horror movies, particularly monster movies, uh, they sort of have that whole thing, um, which I, I really appreciate that here. I, if anything, I think this movie went a little deeper with it than even the original, which I can't believe I'm saying that, but I think it does to some extent. Yes, yeah, I, I do too. I agree with that. And so we've, we've got um, Sandor brings this girl, Lily, back to the apartment. And with the implication, or not really the implication, he tells her she, um, that Mario wants her to be a model. So with the promise of food and wine, which she barely gets a bite of a sandwich and a sip of the wine before Maria's got her starting to take her clothes off, but she basically tells her just to pull pull her shirt down so we can see her shoulders. And of course, she's trying to resist and she can't resist and she ends up uh, biting Lily. Mm-hmm. Lily doesn't die there. But what's interesting in that scene is, from what I understand, it was supposed to be she was supposed to take her clothes completely off. Right. And the studio was like, uh, no, no, we can't even imply it. <laughs> They're like, don't even imply it. Just have it be about the shoulders and neck. Right, but right, I think right. in a similar way, like you brought up the Jaws reference, it, that kind of worked here too. Well, I mean, did you notice how the camera tilts up to a, a small statue that's on the wall? Oh, yes. And so I thought that was like, the the movie that I, I thought of this, when I saw that moment, it made me think of another moment from a movie that came much later. But have you seen uh, Fritz Lang's uh, The Big Heat? No, I have not. So in The Big Heat, there's a moment, spoiler alert, there's a moment where a character throws a hot pot of tea in a character's face. Rather than showing the violence, uh, Fritz Lang pans the camera over to an unrelated object uh, in the room to get away from the violence. I thought of that moment for some reason when I saw this scene. I was like, oh, well played. Okay, yeah. So taking taking the censorship that was, avail- that was available to them at the time uh, and then just turning it right on its ear and showing something totally different and implying uh, the seduction here or, you know, implying that she's taking her clothes off. Right, right. That's great. That, I hadn't even picked up on that. That's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, this this movie was definitely well directed. It was very um, well directed. Yeah, I was puzzlingly surprised. It's like I was not expecting a good movie going into this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, I I guess I just didn't really understand it, or I, a lot of the subtext was obviously lost on me until I just watched it recently. So so Lily uh, is found, her body's found, but she's alive, and the the cops think she's got amnesia, and Garth realizes that she's under hypnosis. So and he also notices the puncture marks on her neck, like the drunk guy that they found. Mm-hmm. So Van Helsing's brought in as a consultant, and he mentions that the vampire. He kind of offhandedly mentions this that a vampire would have no mirrors in their house. I forget forget exactly why he said that. Yeah. Um. But you can see the wheels in Garth's mind starting to turn. 
because he's going, wait a minute, uh, Maria doesn't have mirrors in her house. <laughs> yes, yeah. And then we get another funny little scene with Garth and Janet where he's trying to fix his tie, and he's very confident that he can do it. He's trying to tie the bow tie, which I learned how to do that recently, by the way. I got married earlier in the year. And <laughs> I, I taught myself, like I got a video online and taught myself how to tie a bow tie. That's awesome. And once you learn it, it's actually not that difficult. But he can't seem to wrap his brain around it, and she has to fix it for him. But I forget exactly what he said, but he basically pisses her off. So she fixes it, and but makes it crooked. <laughs> and then she leaves. Yeah. And he's like, what, what, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes, he's got this little hypnosis machine. He takes it over to Lily and turns it on. And Lily kind of, um, she's like, no, no, the ring is too bright. And he starts to finally get the information out of her. And as he's hearing what she's saying before she ultimately drops dead, he kind of puts two and two together and figures out that Maria is the vampire. Right. And one scene that kind of gave me a chill, but in a good way, it was one of those, like a, almost a heroic moment, but it wasn't really heroic. But when Garth calls the Scotland Yard guy, I think it was Basil, and he's like, get Von Helsing and meet me at Mary's, Maria's place. It, it's hard for me to do that justice, but just the, because of the urgency and the fact that he wait, there was no time wasted in the characters not believing in vampires. They got right to the point. He's like, get Van Helsing, meet me there. Boom. And I, I just loved it. I, I love that totally. I was not expecting that. Yeah, no. And that's kind of where the movie starts to kick it up into high gear a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. um, because then Janet's captured by Maria. And then um, Garth confronts her, Maria. And he's just so good in this. It's just the yes. way he, he carries himself. But there was a cool montage of the police putting out the APB on Janet, which I thought was almost not necessary, but I think I thought it kind of worked for the momentum of the way the film was going. Yeah, I agree. And I was definitely like, that sort of perked me up. Like once these things started to get in motion and the things started to move faster and faster, that was really pulling me into the film. And then Marianne and Sandor take Janet to Transylvania and Garth follows her there. Her there. Now, I have a question. Did she travel in a coffin hmm. or a plane with no windows? Because planes fly above the clouds with a sunlight. Mm. <laughs> That's a good question. I didn't think of that. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. They didn't really get into yeah. that. They didn't tell us. I guess it's left up to our imagination. Yeah, that, that was, yeah, that would be my guess as well. So we get to Transylvania and there's a wedding going on and we see this dude congratulates the, the bride and groom. And I I caught this one. I thought this was really interesting. He says to the bride and groom, soon it will be night. And there was a double meaning there because yes. it implies they're going to have sex, but also for the audience, it implies that Mario is going to be able to walk and kill again. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just, I was like, wow, that's so, that's such good writing right yeah. there. Just one line of dialogue. Yeah, that's all. And, you know, I'm, um, I, that's what I got out of it too. I got out of it that, uh, that, that I think she could do this again. And keep going. Yeah. Yeah, and now she's she's out of control. She's basically resigned herself that she's not going to be able to stop. So she might as well have Garth be her, you know, immortal lover. Exactly, yep. So in the distance, um, in Transylvania, the lights come on in Dracula's castle, and the townspeople start to notice this, and they start to get afraid. And uh, Maria basically lays out the plan. She basically tells Garth, I'm going to make you an immortal vampire like me, and we'll live, you know, in harmony forever he's like what the fuck and then 
Sandor is witnessing all this and he gets pissed off because he's like, no, you were supposed to give me eternal life. I've been freaking serving you all these years. You're supposed to give it to me. And so he gets really jealous here. And what's cool about this, I thought the way this movie is, the trajectory of this movie is going now is you've got the Scotland Yard and, and Van Helsing racing after Garth, but it's not really a battle of good and evil. It's Garth is willing to trade his life for Janet's. Right. And, you know, but ultimately Sandor shoots the arrow, which didn't look like it hit her in the stomach. Yeah, I I, I thought so. Yeah. (laughs) Because when I saw that, I'm like, oh, she's not dead. Something's going to happen. And then they're like, oh, they hit her in the heart. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that was I was like I was like wait I was like wait a minute no they did it <laughs> yeah <laughs> now do you think there's a Cupid reference in there because of Sandor's oh, jealousy using the bow and arrow good call yeah no I didn't even think of that that could very well yeah. be and I believe that's the first time in cinema where a bow and arrow is used to to stake a vampire rather than just physically holding it and hitting it with a hammer ah. Oh. I did not even realize that either. It's a very yeah, good call. Yeah. So Scotland Yard shows up with Van Helsing and they shoot Sandor dead, basically saving Garth's life. And um, like I said, I walked into this dreading this movie. I was like, oh, I don't have to watch this movie. Yeah. And I loved it. I, I loved it. I, li- I liked it too. Again, this was my favorite of the three um, uh, sequels. Um, I thought it was the most effective. I thought it would did a very nice job of... Uh, you know, following up the original movie, but at the same time, and the same time, standing very much on its own. Yes, absolutely. So now, here's another question: Do you think Maria was Dracula's biological daughter or a human that was turned? I and th- I'll, I'll give you a well before you yeah. answer that. Let me give you a line of dialogue. Van Helsing states that Dracula's 500 years old, and she's 100 years old. Hmm. I kind of think she's a human that that uh, that was turned uh, for for some reason. Yeah, based on those numbers, I would say. Yeah, she has to be because I I don't really see how logistically he he could. Uh, I, I yeah, I don't see it. <laughs> I just don't see it. Right. How, how she could be a biological. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was interesting, but it was, but it it. Um... A lot of vampire lore in movies and TV shows that I've seen over the years is if you kill the vampire that turned you, you turn human again. Yes. And that doesn't apply here, apparently. Yeah, no, apparently that logic doesn't carry over. Right. I mean, same thing kind of sort of with werewolves, too, but that that didn't even work in the Wolfman. No. But anyways, um, so a lot of the sexual themes here were well over the heads of kids, which made it safe for families, especially back then. Yes. And, um, you know, parents didn't have to explain anything to their yeah. kids that they didn't <laughs> want to. I liked the assistant relationships. We had Janet and Garth and Sandor and Maria. And that was sort of a cool little subplot going through the movie where you've got these assistants that are act, often acting like um, the voice of reason for the other person. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I thought that was kind of a nice little thread through here. There's just a lot of layers in this movie. There is a lot. There is a lot of layers. Yeah, but they're all they're all well played throughout the whole thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I what I really liked, and I walked away this time, you know, I walked into it thinking monster movie, and I walked away thinking 
the character of Maria is not evil. She's just a slave to her nature. She's yes. a slave to her addiction. Yeah, I saw her. It's interesting. I saw her as a character that has a curse put upon her, almost like a disease that was put upon her that she cannot that she cannot control because it's beyond her control. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Chris, did I did I miss anything? Anything further you want to talk about? No, I think movie? I think we covered this one pretty deeply. It uh, again, it's a solid movie. Okay, and your final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts. I think this is a you know, I think many have seen the original Dracula. They know it. Even if they even if they haven't seen it, they know exactly what it is. I think this movie is. Uh, I thought I think this movie is well worth seeing. Uh, as a nice double feature with the original Dracula. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree. And, of course, as we've said before, in the series, special series that we're doing, we're talking about how to introduce someone to horror movies. We're starting with the Universal films, and this is definitely, you know, you start with the parent film, Dracula, and then you go to Daughter of Dracula. I think that, like Chris said, it's a good double feature. So go out and see it if you haven't already seen it. Uh, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Son of Dracula. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Okay, up next is Son of Dracula from 1943. living in a grave. The vampire can assume very many different forms at will. Sometimes it appears as a bat, and sometimes as a small cloud of swirling vapor. In this way, it can move unseen among its enemies. Son of Dracula, searing the screen with new terror in this weird tale of the living dead 
who rise from the grave at night to prey on unsuspecting victims. With Louise Albritton, Robert Page, Evelyn Ankers, Frank Craven, J. Edward Bromberg, and Lon Chaney as the new Count Dracula, you'll shudder at the screen's most fascinating woman vampire, luring men with cold beauty and the promise of immortality. Count Alucard is immortal. Through him, I attained immortality. Through me, you will do the same. Hungarian Count Alucard, a mysterious stranger, arrives in the U.S. invited by Catherine Caldwell, one of the daughters of New Orleans plantation owner Colonel Caldwell. Shortly after his arrival, the colonel dies of apparent heart failure and leaves his wealth to his two daughters, with Claire receiving all the money and Catherine his estate, Dark Oaks. Catherine, a woman with a taste for the morbid, has been secretly dating Alucard and eventually marries him, shunning her longtime boyfriend Frank Stanley. Frank confronts the couple and tries to shoot Alucard, but the bullets pass right through the Count's body and hit Catherine, seemingly killing her. A shocked Frank runs off to Dr. Brewster, who visits Dark Oaks and is welcomed by Alucard and a living Catherine. The couple instruct him that henceforth they will be devoting their days to scientific research and only welcome visitors at night. Frank goes on to the police and confesses to the murder of Catherine. Brewster tries to convince the sheriff that he saw Catherine alive and that she would be away all day, but the sheriff insists on searching Dark Oaks. He finds Catherine's dead body and has her transferred to the morgue. Dr. Brewster is shown reading the novel Dracula. Meanwhile, Hungarian professor Laszlo arrives at Brewster's house. Brewster has noticed that Alucard is Dracula spelled backwards, and Laszlo suspects vampirism. A local boy brought to Brewster's house confirms his suspicion. There are bite marks on his neck. Later, the Count appears to Brewster and Laszlo, but is driven away by a cross. Vampiric Catherine enters Frank's cell as a bat and starts his transformation. After he awakens, she tells him that she still loves him. She explains that she only married Alucard, who was really Dracula himself, to obtain immortality and wants to share that immortality with Frank. He's initially repulsed by her idea, but then yields to her. After she explains that she's already drunk some of his blood, she advises him on how to destroy Alucard. He breaks out of prison, seeks out Alucard's hiding place, and burns the coffin. Without his daytime sanctuary, Alucard is destroyed when the sun rises. Brewster, Laszlo, and the sheriff arrive at the scene to find Alucard's remains. Meanwhile, Frank stumbles into the playroom where Catherine said she would be. He finds her coffin and gazes down at her lifeless body. Knowing he must kill the love of his life, Frank takes off his ring and puts it on Catherine's left ring finger. Once Brewster and the others reach the room, they see Frank appear at the door. He steps back, allowing them to follow. As they enter the room, they see Catherine's burning coffin. They all stare speechlessly while Frank mourns the loss of his love. So, Chris, first thoughts on this film? So, this is the one that I probably forgot the quickest when it was over. Not because I thought it was bad. It just did not stand out to me whatsoever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was okay. I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, I did like Lon Chaney Jr. Like, he was a nice surprise because I had no idea he was actually in this. 
I, I liked it. I just didn't. I can't say I loved it though, and it's one that I I forgot most <laughs> of <laughs> afterwards. I'm sad to say, uh, it just didn't really have the same effect on me that uh, Dracula's Daughter uh, had. Right, and yeah, coming off of Dracula's Daughter, it was hard to kind of compete with that film. Again, I walked in this with memories of these films not blowing my skirt up, so to speak. And I was actually a little bit more surprised. I liked this a lot better than I, I remembered it being this time around. Mm. Although it's kind of funny. I think you and I are going to be opposite on this because I, not that I didn't like Cheney's performance here, but I didn't think he was as charismatic as Lugosi. Mm-hmm. I think he was kind of stiff and, and aloof, I think, in this yeah. movie. I can see that. I can see that. So let's get into the cast and crew here. Um, we've got director Robert Shod, or Siod Mack, I guess is how he, he, I saw that online. He prefers to have it pronounced Siod Mack. Oh, I see. I always thought it was Shod Mack, but he's brother to Kurt Siod Mack, and he's directed a few foreign films and several American films, including Spiral Staircase and Cobra Woman. But now his brother Kurt eclipsed him. Kurt wrote this movie, and he is... He's a legend, especially among the horror fans. He's another one that we're going to have to do a whole show on. He he wrote The Wolfman. He wrote Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. There's just too, too many to go into in today, but he's just yeah. a great writer. And which is surprising because this movie is not that great of a script. Now we've got Lon Chaney Jr. as Count Alucard, a.k.a. Dracula. And again, what... What can we say about Cheney that hasn't been said before? Like I said, I didn't not like his performance. I just thought it was odd and kind of creepy and not at all suave like Lugosi's performance. Then we've got Robert Page as Frank Stanley. He was in The Monster and the Girl from 1941, as well as Abbott and Costello Go to Mars and Bye Bye Birdie. I thought his performance here was as the hapless Frank. I thought he gave a solid performance. I thought so, too. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> just going back to Lon Chaney Jr. for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was kind of a um, surprising choice uh, for this role, I thought. I did not expect him uh, popping up in this. Yeah, he's one of the only uh, horror icons to star as all of the monsters. He's played Dracula, the Wolfman, the Frankenstein monster, and the mummy. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> and the, what I thought was really funny about Chaney here was his he was in his mustache phase. Yes. Yeah. Because I think there's a certain window from like 30, what, what, what year was this movie? Was 43? Oh, this was 43, yeah. 43. So between 43 and like 47, he just always had a mustache. Down a mustache, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which for this, it works because in the book, Dracula has a mustache. Now, see, I did not know that. Yeah. So I think there's a Christopher Lee version directed by Jess Franco that's way closer to the book, and in it, Lee has the mustache. Huh. So have to eventually check that one out, too. Yeah. Then we've got Louise Albatron as Catherine Caldwell, uh, also called Kay. She was in a handful of movies and TV shows, but I didn't find anything very notable about her. Although I really felt she put in an okay performance here. You know, again, nothing to write home about. She's just sort of right. was was good, not great. Yeah. Then you got Frank Craven, who played uh, Dr. Harry Brewster. He died four years after this movie in 1947 at age 70. But I liked his character here. He starts to quickly put things together and, you know, he doesn't waste time disbelieving what he sees. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was probably my... Of all the characters, he was probably the one that stood out for me the most. Yeah. As an actor. Absolutely, I agree. 
And then we've got um, Evelyn Onkers, who plays Claire Caldwell. Now, she's a hottie, and she played she uh, Catherine's sister, Claire, and she was also Gwen Conliffe in The Wolfman. Ah. And she played Elsa Frankenstein in The Ghost of Frankenstein, and she was in The Mad Ghoul and The Invisible Man's Revenge. So she's she's been around the, uh, the horror block here. Hmm. Which she surprisingly had, uh, I think Claire had a much of a lesser role in this, too. Yeah, I I mean, it wasn't really until you brought her up that I even remembered her Yeah, in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would have swapped the actresses. I would have had her play Catherine and had uh, Louise mm-hmm. Albatron play Claire. Yeah. Then we've got, just to round out the cast here, not to get too deep into that, we've got Patrick Moriarty as Sheriff Dawes, Adeline DeWalt Reynolds as Madam Queen Zimba, Etta McDaniels, Etta McDaniel as Sarah, Brewster's maid, George Irving as Colonel Caldwell, and J. Edward Bromberg as Professor Laszlo. So getting into this, um, this movie kind of cites that the original Dracula was destroyed in the 19th century when the novel was set. Mm-hmm. So there's a question I have, and maybe we don't just have to address it now, but, well, all right, I'm going to save that question for later, but, so, um... In 1944, we had House of Frankenstein, and I'm sorry, yeah. And in 1945, was what year was this? I keep forgetting now. This one was 1943. This is Son of Dracula. Okay, right. So we've yep. got after this, we had House of Frankenstein in 44, and then House of Dracula in 45, and those both had uh, John Carradine as Count Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yep. While Brewster and Laszlo sort of speculate that. Um, Alucard might be a descendant of the original Dracula, which is congruent with the film's title. Catherine tells Frank that he is Dracula. So it never clarifies. This was the question I had saved for later. It never really clarifies. Again, sort of the same thing as the last movie. Is he really the son of Dracula or is he someone that Dracula turned? Right. Yeah, you know, when I went into this one, I actually thought... My first thought was, okay, is this going to be a retread of the last movie? Right, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, and I mean, and it wasn't to a certain extent, but I mean, it, I mean, it does hit on, on very familiar themes and it's kind of the same, but I mean, it's nowhere near the same as Dracula's Daughter, not even a little bit. No, not at all. Uh, not as deep no. as well. <laughs> no, 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 nope, not even close. Uh no, I saw this as more of like a fun monster movie than anything else. Like, uh, you know, you go in there and you talk off your brain and you just watch it. <laughs> That's what I saw yeah. this movie as being. Um, same same with uh, House of Dracula, which we'll get to. But yeah, yeah. but nonetheless, um, I, not to get too off track here, but I do have to say I loved how this started with the credits, the way it wipes into frame. That yes. as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, this is gonna be a good time. And yeah. unfortunately it wasn't as good of a time as I thought, but that hooked me in right away. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, wow, that you know, that's clever. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. I, and I, yeah, I just loved I was trying to figure out how they did that too. It was just yeah. they did it so well. Yep. Yep. But then then the fake bag comes in, I'm like, okay, I'm lost. <laughs> yeah. I- <laughs> It's like, oh, really? Yeah, okay. I, I, I just started laughing, and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know if I should be laughing right now, but <laughs> right, I know. And have you? Did you notice too that, that every time every movie Dracula's bat gets bigger and bigger? Dracula's <laughs> what gets form. bigger? His bat form. 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. And then then you go to House of Dracula. The bat is even bigger, I think. It's like bigger than a seagull. So uh, this is the first Universal Dracula film that takes the Count out of Europe and brings him to America, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. Yes. And it's also the first one to show the on-screen uh, bat-to-man transformation, which we did not get any of that in the first Dracula. No, we did not. And um, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it also the first where the vampire turns into mist? Yes, I was I was going to mention that. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was a cool scene because when Catherine goes to the swamp and you've got the trunk that sort of it's not even a coffin, it's a trunk that floats to the top and a mist comes out of it and solidifies into Dracula. And this scene I really loved. Yeah. Cuz I'd forgotten it. He basically just floats across the water to Catherine. And normally I don't like scenes in movies where it's obvious that the actor is just standing on a flat dolly mm -hmm. and being pulled along mm -hmm. but it worked for me here I didn't need to see how far above the water his yep. feet were I just thought it was effective yeah and you know I have an appreciation for these sort of cheap and obvious effects particularly because that's what they had available at the time so I actually do appreciate that stuff but uh, but much like yourself I, I'm actually it's funny I'm looking for where the string is. I'm looking for where the dolly is. I'm looking for all these things. Uh, right, right. <laughs> I didn't see it here, but nonetheless, I still enjoyed it. But, you know, and it's funny you mentioned uh, going across the water. There again is that bit of uh, religious, um, uh, I guess, I don't even want to say symbolism because this movie this movie has no symbolism. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> but, but there is a bit of that sort of religious... Uh, uh, imagery going on there, uh, which I'm like, okay, all right, there's the, you know, I guess it sort of is harkening back to it. I mean, this movie, let's Jeez, be, I didn't get that at all. Yeah, because like, because let's be clear, this movie is totally unrelated to the original. It literally has almost no relation and has no relation to the books uh, either, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a, 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 not as much of a mess as the next one, but so, all right, Frank realizes that Catherine and Dracula got married. Wait, oh no, I'm sorry, I, let me back up a bit here. So, Dracula basically kills the colonel, and it took me a little bit to figure out that it was basically so that Catherine would inherit it, and they can use it as a base of operations. One, one thing, I, I guess I'm, we've already done the, the plot synopsis, so I can do I can talk about this. It, I thought it was interesting, by the end, to, to tie everything together, you kind of figure out that Catherine purposely went to... Or somehow, somehow she she got involved with Alucard, and you know basically told him, "Oh, I have this plantation," and we're under the auspices of like wanting him to turn her into a vampire. And her plan was have Dracula come back, get married. He turns her, then she turns, or she starts to turn Frank. Has Frank kill Dracula, and then her and Frank can go off and live immortality together. Right. And it took me, like, really, I had to think about it at the end of the movie to sort of pull it all together. So she was playing Dracula, even though it appears that Dracula's playing her, which that, I thought that was see, kind of a cool flip. That, that was a cool flip, but I didn't, I didn't even get that until you just mentioned that. But now it makes sense, because upon watching it, I think the reason why I'm poo-pooing on it a bit is because I found it to be a little bit convoluted uh, with that explanation. Right. Right, and it just seemed to me, because at first I'm like, okay, so Dracula Dracula kills the colonel, so she'll inherit it, he'll marry her, and then he can use that as his new base of operations. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, it was the other way around. She wanted him to think that, but then she just wanted to, to get the, the powers and the immortality. Sure, yep. 
So that that was a cool element for me. That made me like the film a lot more than I remembered liking it. Sure. So then Frank realizes that Catherine and, and Dracula get married. He goes in to confront them. And again, this was a scene that like knocked me off my feet when I saw it. Dracula basically effortlessly grabs Frank by the throat, picks him up, and flings him right through a door. And then Frank grabs the gun and goes to shoot Dracula, and somehow the Dracula, the bullets go through him and kill Catherine on the backside. But that didn't bother me because I thought that scene was very well done because I did not expect it. Yes. You never saw that with no, with yeah, no, you really, yeah, yeah, no, you, you, I think this one had probably the most amount of uh, action going on it than, than the previous uh, Dracula films. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And this movie also, well, actually all of them, they set up the rules. You had touched upon it a little while ago. The rules about vampires, you've got the cross, the wooden stakes, sunlight, the soil from their homeland, uh, turning into a wolf or bat. These, All these tropes are kind of planted in these Dracula Universal films. Yeah, they yeah they are. Um, and, um, and again... Um, I think this is where I think this is a good opportunity to actually talk about this, but I really think that uh, you know, you, you know, you have so many uh, Dracula movies. I would argue that uh, Dracula is one of the most seen characters, along with James Bond, along with uh, you know some of these movies that have multiple movies in a series. I would argue that Dracula, uh, because of these Universal movies that it's set up for the future. Of other Dracula appearances, whether whether the movie was focused on Dracula or Dracula was just in it. I mean, Monster Squad had Dracula in it. You know, you had uh, yeah. you know Dracula dead and loving it. So I would argue that the Dracula character is probably one of the most, um, uh, uh, probably one of the few characters to appear in multiple movies for almost a whole century. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's absolutely true. I mean, a book was written in 1897, so he he's over well over a century now. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, like you said, too, you started with Nosferatu, which was a loose adaptation of the book. Yeah. Back in the 20s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I think one of the things to take away, too, from even movies like uh, like this one, which wasn't my favorite of the three that, that we watched, is the, the look of all these pictures. You know, the sort of German expressionist uh, lighting that uh, sort, right. of, sort of got started with the original Nosferatu, the nice shadow play. Uh, I think I think with this one, I was mostly looking at it because it's so beautiful visually. Yes, it is. It definitely is. So uh, after this fight, uh, Frank escapes into the graveyard and he, he passes out and Dracula comes upon him. And this, I thought, was kind of an odd scene because the moon casts a shadow from a, a cross, you know, one of the gravestones is in the shape of a cross, and it casts the cross over Frank, and that drives Dracula away. Now, that's all fine and well and good, but the cross's shadow was white and everything else was dark. Yeah. So I didn't know, did, did you think it was maybe the light reflecting off of the cross rather than casting a shadow? It, that's probably, yeah, I think that's probably what it was. I mean, I found that a bit odd too. And, you know, to be frank, I actually thought that that, um, that moment kind of a bit heavy-handed with the uh you know with the uh, with the whole uh cross thing I'm like okay, I'm like all right yeah it's kind of hanging over the head a bit here right right yeah <laughs> <laughs> which I thought it was a great way of like the writers are probably like you know how are we going to get him out of this right <laughs> oh, he's in the graveyard yeah. okay yeah <laughs> cuz I guess I mean if this was if we were to take this into the real world and use real world physics 
and you're outside at night, and the moon is so full and bright, it literally, everything is kind of lit up to a degree, just very dimly. So you do, you still do see shadows, but maybe they just couldn't make the shadow work on camera and have you be able to discern, distinguish the, the shadow of the cross from the shadows on the ground. Yeah, unfortunately, um, uh, shadows at night are not that strong. <laughs> so it, right. Uh, but I'm sure, like you said, that um, <clears throat> I'm sure that on camera they probably had to make it stronger to make the implication, uh, uh, right. To make the implication stronger. So I get I get why they probably had to do that, but it probably, but yeah, that moment was a bit strange. I felt. Yeah, you know. So it turns out that um, uh, Doctor Brewster goes into the dark oaks to search around, and he discovers that Cat's not dead. Or Kay, uh, Catherine is not dead, but. We don't. We we kind of surmise. At least I did. That Dracula probably turned her. And then that was another yeah. thing. Getting back to the fight scene, the bullets went right through Dracula. Did he just so because he can turn to mist? Did he just sort of like the Martian Manhunter just phase for a minute, for a split second, so the bullets pass through him? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Because there's no reason for that. He still has a physical body. He should be, he yeah. should at least take the bullets and have them he not do any. Right, exactly. Anything. Yep. So um, we got a lot of interesting things that happened here. There was a cool scene where the, the doctor and the professor are discussing vampires and Dracula. And then Dracula shows up and he whips out the cross and that drives him away. Which, again, since we've already seen the cross, like you said, it's probably a little bit heavy handed in this right. movie. They could have, you know, maybe thrown garlic at his head or something. <laughs> it could have been a bit more subtle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I thought was kind of interesting, though, was that the doctor paints little crosses on uh, the the bites, the vampire bites on the little boy. And he was convinced yes. that that was going to save the kid. Right. Which I don't know if that would have worked or not. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, maybe holy water would have been a better solution. Right, yeah. I mean, I thought that was an interesting touch, but uh, I'm, like, I'm like, okay, that's... um. I don't know if that's going to work, but <laughs> good <Right>. luck to you. <laughs> so Catherine flies into the jail where Frank is and bites him on the neck. And um, up till now, I don't think we've ever seen a vampire actually bite someone like we talked about earlier. Yeah. And we still didn't see a human do it, but it was the bat doing it. Right. Yeah. So then we get into her whole place. She basically helps him to escape so the, and gives him instructions to go and destroy Dracula's coffin, which was kind of cool because... As he's running out there, the first thing I thought of was like, well, he doesn't have a stake. He doesn't have a hammer. How is he going to kill Dracula? Sure. And then when they showed the coffin on fire, I was like, oh, yeah. okay. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> that was another thing they kind of they kind of harped in all of these movies is that the vampire needs to have the so their native soil lining the coffin. Yes. Which explains how they're able to leave the country if you just take the coffin with you. So, you know what? In answer of our question for the last movie, uh, Maria probably did fly in the coffin on the plane because she would have to have been on her soil in order to travel. That's true. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, I could buy that, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least according to the rules set up in the the universal universe here. So Frank burns Dracula's coffin. Dracula comes up. He freaks out, tries to toss Frank into the fire, and that fails. He tries to put the fire out himself, but at that point, it's too late. The sun comes up, and Dracula is toast. He falls into the water, and we even see he's got the Dracula crest ring on. Although, this is another thing. Yeah. I don't know how well you know this, but like Lugosi's Dracula had a ring that had the Dracula crest on it, and that's something that's been handed down 
through the decades because Christopher Lee wore the same Dracula crest ring when really? he played Dracula. Oh. Yeah. And I forget where I may Bob Burns may have it now. I'm not sure. But, oh, he probably does. <laughs> um, yeah. Because so, I don't think Forey Ackerman got it. But um, but if you remember, like on the on the what was it the was it a coffin, and then a bunch of his luggage, he had the Alucard crest. So did he just go around and like change all the stationery to make it <laughs> just to come up with this phony name? <laughs> yeah, and well, and and the other thing too is like. Didn't you think it was kind of obvious that it was Dracula spelled backwards? Oh yeah, I mean that's. Such I was an like, I, I, I was like, that. I was like, come on, how can anyone be fooled by that? <laughs> right, I mean that was used even in the Monster Squad. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly, and I, I think that was even used in, um, in uh, Troll Two. They have like a, a scene where a Goblin is spelled backwards, and. and <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah, it was just, I guess back then that was new. So, but yeah. if you're going to see a movie called Son of Dracula, it's kind of not difficult to put two it's and not, two together. Yeah, no, it's, it's, not, it's not that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, Frank goes back to the house and he burns Kat's coffin. He, he takes his wedding ring off, throws it in the coffin and burns her as well, which I didn't think it was that obvious at first that she was in the coffin. I kind of had to rewind it and yeah. it was inferred. You didn't hear any screaming or anything. Sure. But it begs the question, was that part of her plan all along? If that's the case, then why did she go through all the trouble of having what uh, Dracula come here in the first place? Right. Which I don't think she expected that Frank was going to kill her. Yeah, exactly. So, And then on the version I watched on the Legacy Collection, there was a war bond ad at the end. Did you get that as well? Uh, a what at the end? A war bond. Mm. It was like a, a card that came up basically saying, buy war bonds and you'll, you'll end up getting the money back. <laughs> I don't think I saw that, no. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll, have to, I'll have to look again. I watched it on Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. It may, yeah. it may not be on there. Yeah. So now, um, again, I walked into this movie remembering that I didn't like it all that much. And personally, I was actually pleasantly surprised and I really enjoyed it. Um, I had I had memories of it being not very thrilling or engaging. And this time around, it really did grab me. And I was engaged pretty much through the end. Especially when it sort of kicked into high gear, I I was really I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So what what are your final thoughts on this? Or is there anything else first that you want to talk about? Well, no. I mean, I was kind of the opposite. I mean, from the get go, um, I wasn't sure what to expect. I thought, okay, this is probably going to be the opposite of Dracula's daughter, and just be you know, you know, and just be Dracula's uh, son. I thought I thought, okay, we're probably gonna get, probably going to get the same story here. We didn't. I started out really immersed in it, and then I slowly was kind of in and out throughout the rest of the movie, just because, like you said, uh, I didn't find it all that engaging. I liked it, didn't love it. Would I go back to watch it again? Mm, maybe. I mean, I mean, I, I do consider myself a, um, a completist when it comes to these kind of things, uh, movie series and that sort of thing. So if I were to re-watch, let's say, the original Dracula that I wanted to go on a kick, I would watch this one because I, I did. I, there were a lot of fun moments in it. And I think so, too. I agree. And I think um, I think, again, we're trying to talk to people who are and teach them how to get um, where to start yeah. to get kids into horror movies. And I, obviously the Universal Films is the best place to start. These may be the weakest of the films. Yeah, um, I think so. So far, but we've got a lot that we're going to discuss in upcoming episodes. So let's take a break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss House of Dracula from 1945. Prepare 
for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio! Hey folks, I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcast on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. Okay, our third and final film today is House of Dracula from 1945.
See, before you a man who has lived for centuries, kept alive by the blood of innocent people. When the full moon rises, I turn into a werewolf with only one desire, to kill. I tried to perform the miracle of science and failed. My blood is contaminated with the blood of Dracula. Count Dracula arrives at the castle home of Dr. Franz Edelman. The Count, who introduces himself as Baron Latos, explains that he has come to Viseria to find a cure for his vampirism. Dr. Edelman agrees to help. Together with his assistants Milizia and the hunchback Nina, he's been working on a mysterious plant, the Claveria formosa, whose spores have the ability to reshape bone. Edelman explains that he thinks vampirism can be cured by a series of blood transfusions. Latos agrees to this, and Edelman uses his own blood for the transfusions. Latos has his coffin placed in the castle basement. That night, Lawrence Talbot arrives at the castle. He demands to see Dr. Edelman about a cure for his lycanthropy. Talbot is asked to wait. Knowing that the moon is rising, Talbot has himself incarcerated by the police. A crowd of curious villagers gathers outside the police station, led by the suspicious Steinmull. Inspector Holtz asks Edelman to see Talbot, and as the full moon rises, they both witness his transformation into the Wolfman. Edelman and Militia have him transferred to the castle the next morning. Edelman tells him that he believes that Talbot's transformations are not triggered by moonlight, but by pressure on the brain. He believes he can relieve the pressure, but Talbot must wait for him to gather more mold from his spores. Despondent by the thought of becoming the Wolfman again, Talbot says he wants to kill himself, and he ends up jumping into the ocean. He lands in a cave below the castle. Edelman searches for Talbot and finds that he did survive the fall, but is turned into the Wolfman. The Wolfman attacks, but suddenly returns to his human form as the moon goes behind the clouds. In the cave, they find the catatonic Frankenstein monster, still clutching the skeleton of Dr. Niemann. Humidity in the cave is perfect for propagating the Claveria Formosa, and a natural tunnel in the cave connects to a basement of the castle. Dr. Edelman takes the monster back to his lab, but considers it too dangerous to revive him. Latos tries to seduce Militia and makes her a vampire, but Militia wards him off with a cross. Edelman interrupts to explain that he's found strange antibodies in the Count's blood, requiring another transfusion. Nina begins shadowing Militia, who is weakened by Dracula's presence. Nina notices that the Count casts no reflection in a mirror. She warns Edelman of the vampire's danger to Militia. Edelman prepares a transfusion that will destroy the vampire. During the procedure, Latos uses hypnotic powers to put Edelman and Nina to sleep. Then he reverses the flow of the transfusion, sending his own blood into the doctor's veins. When they awake, Latos is carrying Militia away. They revive Talbot and force Latos away with a cross. Latos returns to his coffin as the sun is beginning to rise. Edelman follows him and drags the open coffin into the sunlight, destroying Dracula. Edelman begins to react to Dracula's blood and becomes evil. He no longer casts a reflection in the mirror. Falling unconscious, he sees strange visions of himself performing unspeakable acts. When he awakens, his face has changed to reflect his evil nature, just like in his vision. Then he returns to his normal self. Edelman performs the operation on Talbot. Afterwards, he transforms again into his evil self and brutally murders his gardener. 
when the townspeople discover the body, they chase Edelman, believing him to be Talbot. They follow him to the castle where Holtz and Steinmull interrogate Talbot and Edelman. Steinmull is convinced that Edelman is the murderer and assembles a mob to execute him. Talbot's finally cured by the operation, but Edelman again turns into his evil self. He revives the Frankenstein monster, but the monster is very weak. Nina is horrified by Edelman's transformation, and Edelman breaks her neck and tosses her body into the cave. Holtz and Steinmull lead the townspeople to the castle. The police attack the monster, but the monster subdues them. Edelman kills Holtz by accidental electrocution. Talbot shoots Edelman dead. Then he traps the monster under falling shelving. A fire breaks out and the townspeople flee the burning castle. The burning roof collapses on the monster. The end. So this movie was made and takes place between House of Frankenstein in 1944 and Abner Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. And we'll cover those when we get to the Frankenstein sequels. But first, Chris, I want to ask you, have you seen House of Frankenstein? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, so just a quick refresher, or um, just to let you know, John Carradine shows up as Dracula and basically calls himself Baron Latos in that movie. Mm -hmm. And then in that movie, spoiler alert, the Frankenstein monster and uh, uh, Dr. Niemann, who's played by Boris Karloff, they end up getting drowned in a swamp and then somehow, of course, end up in this movie. So your first thoughts on House of Dracula. So, first of all... um, When you're reading the synopsis, I'm like, I'm like, it didn't really occur to me until you were reading it that so much happens in this movie, and this movie is only an hour and seven minutes long. I know. <laughs> there is, first of all, this has to be the strangest of, of the three because it's a free-for-all. You got Dracula, you got the Wolfman, you got Frankenstein's monster, uh, you have a hunchback. It's just like, this movie's crazy. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a yeah. free-for-all, um, I, but, I, but you know what? This was the most fun, I think, of the three. I had the most fun watching this one because of how much is going on here. Uh, and I actually did see um, Abba Me Frankenstein years and years ago. I barely remember it, but I thought of that uh. movie. But I thought of that movie as I watched this one because of how much happens. And you know what? I can't even really say this is Dracula's movie because Dracula is only in about 20% of this whole thing. <laughs> right, right. I would say the good majority is The Wolfman. And then Frankenstein's monster comes in, and then it just becomes a giant free-for-all, and it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's cool. Because, you know, I walked in not particularly remembering that I liked this film either, and I did end up liking it more than I did, but yeah. I had a lot of problems with it. And one thing, and, and we'll we'll discover this as we get into the, when we do the Frankenstein films eventually, is you, you've got a whole series of these monster mashups. Yeah. And this was right before Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein, so this was the last of the series serious ones and then that was a comedy which that is one of my all-time favorite movies i watch that all the time my son loves it too um but this movie i had a lot of problems with and we'll get into that Uh, yeah (laughs) i did too (laughs) before we do that let's talk about the casting crew you've got uh the director was eric c kenton and he started off in silent films he worked straight through into the 60s he also directed ghost of frankenstein and house of frankenstein which are other monster mashups just like this one mm-hmm. uh he does a pretty good good job here but despite the script i thought he did a pretty solid job you know the film was competently made and i think that it, that helps us sort of not to notice the imperfections in the story sure 
At least that's what I took away from it. Um, Then you've got the writer Edward T. Lowe, who also wrote House of Frankenstein. And considering that this movie, Son of Dracula, was his second-to-last screenplay that he ever wrote, I wonder if he was just basically phoning it in and really didn't give a shit about anything making complete sense. I wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, yeah, whatever. He's like, "Ah, fuck this, I'm out. (laughs) Right, yeah. He's on senior slide. Yeah. So, of course, we already talked about Lauren Chaney Jr., who comes back as uh, the Wolfman this time. Last time we saw him as Dracula. Yep. And I think, I don't know how many other uh, other Wolfman movies you've seen, but Chaney's always great as he Lawrence is. Talbot. I've seen so I've seen the original Wolfman, which I which I adore. I love that one. Okay. Yep. And um, you know, and he he does a great job here for what he has to work with. I thought he did great here. You know, really no complaints here. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was really good. Um, and like you said, there was so much in this movie, he doesn't quite get as much screen time as I thought he no. as I thought he should. Yeah. Um, so we've got Onslow Stevens, who plays Dr. Franz Edelman, and he was 43 in this, but they made him up to look much older. I remember watching it going, he's, that guy is definitely not that old. Yeah. And when I finally figured it out, he was 43. Um, he was also in The Monster and the Girl with Robert Page from the last movie, as well as being in the movie Them from 1954 ah. about the giant ants. Sure, yeah. Uh, so he unfortunately had a, a sad ending to his life. Alcohol kind of killed his career. And then he ended up in this nursing home where he was abused by the other residents. Oh. And he suffered a broken hip, and that was ruled as not being accidental. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So somebody basically hurt him. He died from the bro- broken hip from oh. complications. And I don't think there was ever an investigation. I, I looked it up. I couldn't find anything. That's terrible. Yeah. I didn't yeah, know it was that. really bad. Wow. Yeah. But I thought he did a great job here of going from a somewhat religious scientist, which was sort of an anachronism, to a stark raving lunatic of a monster, and, and sometimes in a matter of seconds. I thought he was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Then we've got, of course, horror star John Carradine as Count Dracula and Baron Latos. You know, he's another one for the list of people that we're going to have to do a full show on. He's father, of course, of Keith Carradine and David Carradine from Kung Fu fame and Kill Bill. And, you know, how can we do this man justice here? He's just a major Hollywood star. Oh, he's a legend. Yeah, his distinct, deep voice. Um, we're not going to go over all, all of his films here, but um, for for our purposes, actually, we're going to just mention the times he's played Dracula. So prior to this movie, he played Dracula in House of Frankenstein, as we mentioned. Then he went on to play the part three more times, not in Universal films, but he played Dracula in Billy the Kid versus Dracula in 1966. Uh, he was in a, a movie called Las Vampiras in 1969. And in 1979, he was in Nocturna, Granddaughter of Dracula, which I would imagine by 1979, he was old enough to probably be the grandfather of Dracula. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which I haven't seen the last two, but I have seen Billy the Kid versus Dracula. I think that, that was on Spanguli recently. Yeah, yeah, that's one I have yet to see because I've heard, <laughs> I've heard, how, yeah. awful, I've heard how awful that one is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so then we've got Lionel Atwell as Police Inspector Holtz, and he's personally one of my favorite uh, of the character actors. I, I mean, I love them all, but he's just a mainstay in the horror movies. He's been in so many things. Yeah. Which, he did die young, actually. He died in 46, uh, right after, a couple of years after really? this movie. At age 61, yeah. And But he was most notably in Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. That's the one I always remember him from. Mm-hmm. Uh, House of Frankenstein and the Man-Made Monster, just to name a few. And it's funny because I was just talking to Joe Lemieux a couple of days ago, and I think we were talking about Sir Cedric Hardwick. 
and I used to uh, one of the movies that they're both in. I think it's Ghost of Frankenstein. I would as a kid, I couldn't tell who was who. Like him and Lionel Atwell looked so similar. It took me years to figure out who was who. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Martha Driscoll, Martha O'Driscoll as Melitia Morell, and she's a gorgeous blonde that was yes. in a. She was a mainstay B movie actress throughout the thirties and forties. She played alongside some Western stars like Tim Holt, as well as comedy teams like Abbott and Costello. And I thought she did a good job here as Melitia. She did, yeah. And I have to, I have to say, when she first appeared on screen, laying in the bed. I swear to God, I thought that she was Judy Garland. Wow. She looks like uh, Judy Garland. She does. She does. I didn't think of that. When I, the first shot, I thought it was a little kid. Did you really? And until they cut to the, yeah, and until they cut to the close-up, I'm like, what, is Dracula going to kill this little kid? Right. And then they cut to the close-up. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he shows up with, with the, the phony bat. I'm not going right, to yeah. mention that. We'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get into that. So we've got Jane Adams as Nina the Hunchback. She was also in The Brute Man with Rondo Hatton, and she played Vicki Vale in the Batman and Robin movie serial. I liked her here because, yeah, spoiler alert, she's she's the hunchback, but she wasn't a crazed hunchback. She was very sympathetic, and she had a lot of empathy, especially for Larry Talbot. Yeah, no, she was a good, I guess, sort of counterpart to another another uh, universal horror movie. Which, which, I mean, it wasn't really part of the universe, but Hunchback and Notre Dame. You know, the original, right. you know, sort of a nice counterpart to that. Right. And I, well, I think that's the thing. If you live in the universe of universal films and you have a hunchback, you basically the only job you can, you're, you know, qualified for is to be the assistant to a mad scientist. Oh, sure. I mean, look at, uh, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Marty Feldman had the best um, uh, hunchback <laughs> in uh, Young Frankenstein. <laughs> what hump, sir? Yeah, what hump? <laughs> Wasn't it on the other shoulder? Uh, no. <laughs> What the hell are you doing in the bathroom day and night? <laughs> That's my favorite line. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Yeah, uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do that movie at some point. Maybe Absolutely. after we do yeah. the Frankenstein ones, we'll, we'll do Young without Frankenstein. a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, then we've got Skelton Nags as Steinmal. Now this guy, he was a great character actor because he had just had that unique face. There was I don't know exactly why his face had those, whether they were pockmarks or scars. But because of his face, he was typecast as a villain in or a heavy in a ton of movies. And he was in such films as The Invisible Man's Revenge. He was in Val Luton's The Ghost Ship, which I would really at some point like to talk about Val Luton movies. And he also did two Dick Tracy movies, Dick Tracy versus Cue Ball Mm -hmm. and Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. Yeah. And he was also in uh, the Bowery Boys film Mastermind alongside Alan Napier and Glenn, Spr- Glenn Strange, who plays the Frankenstein monster in this. Huh. Then we've got Lud- Ludwig Stossel as Siegfried. He has a small part here. He was also in From the Earth to the Moon. He's probably best remembered for his long series of TV commercials for Italian Swiss Colony Wine, in which he played that little old winemaker, me. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, then finally, we've got Glenn Strange, of course, who plays the Frankenstein monster. He didn't have a lot to do here. And no. We'll actually go into him, uh, the actor, uh, in future when we talk about the Frankenstein movies. So, okay. <laughs> House of Dracula. <laughs> yeah. I right here in my notes, I've got opening scene. Dracula appears as a bat, and you can see the wires. Yes, you can. Yep. <laughs> I was looking for that. and like, there it is. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I was like, oh, that's really how we're going to start this movie. Okay. And I'm yes. watching, I mean, I have a pretty decent sized TV screen. Like, I think it's like 80 inches or something. But right. imagine on the movie screen how oh. obvious that would be. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, as soon as I came up, I'm like, okay, this is what we're in for. All right, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but then I thought this was really odd because, you know, Dracula shows up out outside the girl's window which like i said i thought it was a little girl but then he goes down and comes in through the front door and he's talking to the colonel and then he the the colonel like oh yeah welcomes him into the house no doesn't even introduce himself no (laughs) (laughs) he he takes him you know uses the pseudonym baron latos and then he takes him down to the basement and dracula's coffin's already there and he's like oh how did you get this in here? And he's like, uh, oh, I came in the back way or something. <laughs> and, well, and well, I love how, too, he just lets him in, lets him come down to the basement. Yep, just no harm, no foul. Just, sure, come on in. I don't know who you are, but come on in. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, maybe times were different back then. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's like, he's like, uh, my first thought was, okay, he's going to trick this guy into doing something. But, nope, he's legitimately looking for help. Right, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. And then um, I, I said the Colonel. I, I was the last movie. You know, I, I, that's one of the problems I've been having, what I was having preparing for this is I kept confusing elements from Son of Dracula yes. and House of Dracula. Yeah, <laughs> S- same here, yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you said that because I found both movies to be roughly similar, particularly not just because of Lon Chaney Jr. being in um, son, right? But which wasn't confusing enough as on its own, right? Exactly. But uh, but you know what's interesting? This movie was actually supposed to be it had the working titles of Dracula versus the Wolfman or Wolfman versus Dracula. So that this was always the intent, apparently, which I had no idea. Huh. That's too bad because we really didn't get any Dracula versus the Wolfman. Yeah. No. None of that. And then you know, again, Frankenstein shows up at a Frankenstein's monster. Excuse me. Shows up out of nowhere. So it's uh, right. So now Dracula's there looking for a cure, which is an element from Daughter of Dracula. All of a sudden, he's no longer evil. He wants a cure. Why? Why is that? I Yeah, I never... The movie doesn't really go into that, unfortunately. Like, he meets Milizia, and apparently they met at a party off screen, and he mentions that later on in the film. But I think... My theory is that it was just a plot excuse. Well, it's actually... There's two theories. One is that... It was just a plot excuse to get him to the doctor's house to gain control of Militia, or he really did want the cure for some reason. He, you know, in the last, you know, I guess he was killed. I don't know. It it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I think I'm thinking too hard about this. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. This was again a movie where once uh, you know once you know once wolfman came into it i sort of turned my brain off i was like okay you know this is a movie where you sit back and enjoy and, uh, right and i did you know it's very check enjoyable. your brain at the door yeah, and don't expect it. too much yeah exactly so then we get introduced to nurse nina and uh at first we only see her sitting on a stool behind a rack of test tubes and scientific equipment and it isn't until she walks around that we realize she's a hunchback so for you, this was your first viewing. Were you shocked at that? A little bit, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really expect that. Yeah, that, that's good. I had forgotten that, and uh, until she walked around, I was like, "Oh crap, that's right, she's a hunchback." Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was cool, but I, I liked the fact that she wasn't just the the evil hunchback, you know, working for the mad scientist. She no, actually she was, sympathetic. Had, was yeah. a nice person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So then, of course, um, the doctor finds a parasite in, in Latos's blood and theorizes that adding another parasite into Dracula's bloodstream will, will not only kill the existing parasites, but then they'll kill themselves as well. Okay, I, I guess. I guess, yeah. And then, so, so what does he do? He gives him a blood transfusion. Right. <laughs> does the doctor have parasites in his own blood? Well, and also, my first thought was, wait a minute, wouldn't that turn him into... A vampire that like I was like I was like wait a minute I was like wait a minute why is he sacrificing himself I'm, I don't get it <laughs> right yeah but I think in that jeez oh, I'm not sure I think no in that instance it's the blood is going from the doctor to Dracula oh okay I got you I thought they because, were I thought they were transferring from each other that's the no okay gotcha okay because because then later on you see Dracula change the things where it basically stops the blood coming from the doctor yes and starts it coming from him and then he yes. sends it to the doctor right okay okay so gotcha yeah but it still it doesn't make sense why he's no. doing the transfusion no it doesn't I'm like wait wait a minute wait how <laughs> oh my god so while he's in the middle of doing that Larry Talbot Larry Talbot shows up in Lon Chaney in mustache mode again yes and if you're a wolf man I'm sorry but if you're a werewolf <laughs> Especially someone like Lawrence Talbot, who is so desperate to find a cure, desperate to the point of trying to commit suicide. Why would you take the time to cultivate a mustache? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck. Yeah, and well, and also that, also the whole suicide turn that was so random. <laughs> that was just yeah. I don't know where yeah. I'm like I'm like wait a minute I'm like I'm like wait I'm like wait I'm like wait a minute why does he want to kill himself now? Well, he comes in. He comes in and finds out he's got to wait for an hour, and he throws a hissy fit and runs out. <laughs> That's right. Goes up to the cliff, <laughs> dramatically jumps off of it. I'm like, I'm like, wait, I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, all right. So, but I wonder though, when he first entered, I, because I was like, oh yeah, there he is. Yeah. I wondered if the audience cheered when you know when they first saw this oh, movie. The, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure they did. Yeah, I'm I know sure I would did. have. Yeah, I mean, this is again, this is one of those Saturday afternoon B pictures, you know, and uh, like like one of those. I can see this playing. I mean, this didn't come till later, but I can see this being a double feature movie where you go on a Saturday afternoon, you pl- and you pay a couple of cents, and you go into the theater and you watch uh, two two monster movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That must have been so much fun. No matter how bad the movie was, I bet you that was just unbelievable. Well, fun. it was something. It was something. It was something for the parents to drop off their kids while they went and did shopping or whatever. It was just a time right. killer. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And you didn't just get the movies. I mean, we could do a whole show about how you yeah. got newsreels and cartoons. Yeah, yep. cartoons. You got short, short films. films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'd lo- I would love to see that come back someday. Oh, me too. This is the, per- oh, this is the perfect time for it. I mean, drive-ins are now making a lot of money because of the pandemic. So, yeah, bring, oh, yeah. bring it back yeah. by all means. <laughs> yeah, I've been talking about that too. And, um, all right, so anyways, not to get too far off topic. Yes. So, um, you know, Carradine was not as suave as Lugosi, uh, but he wasn't as creepy as Cheney's Dracula. He, I thought he had a definite charm to his personality. I thought so, too. Yeah, I mean, he was he was good. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't say he was creepy. Um, I wouldn't say he was underwhelming either. But, I mean, he, you know, he, he was okay. He was good. Yeah, he's definitely got that commanding presence it's I don't know I think it's just Lugosi for me set the bar to a certain extent as Dracula's not even though Dracula's evil he's not um overtly antagonistic he's charming and suave and smooth talking right yeah you know? well like well again the character of Dracula is quite seductive you know and uh, right 
Um, and, uh, you know, in defense of John Carradine, those are tough shoes to fill, particularly when... That's true. Yeah, so, I mean... I mean, you know, when you have someone like Lugosi who literally set the standard for how this character is supposed to think and feel and act, that that's really tough to follow. Right. Right. I agree with that. And it, I thought he was kind of charming in, with, when he was trying to seduce Militia. Yes. Which was a cool scene. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit here. So we've got, um, we finally get to see Lionel Atwell as police inspector Holtz and, um, I feel he was kind of wasted here because we get his initial scenes and then he disappears until almost the end of the movie. Right. And it was like, okay, all right, good. You got this great cast and you're kind of wasting them. So then we've got... They, now, this was an interesting thing because I noticed this right off the bat. They established they're in the town of Viseria. Um, and Viseria featured prominently in the two previous films, Ghost of Frankenstein, and the three previous films, Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, and House of Frankenstein. So um, we'll have to really delve into that a little bit when we get into the sequels. And it might actually help to explain some of the convolutedness that happens later on in this film. Right. So Holtz gets the doctor and brings him and the nurse to Militia to the jail because Larry Talbot has insisted that he be locked up. Then, in what I thought was actually a really cool scene, is the moon comes up through the window and uh, Larry Talbot transforms into the Wolfman yes. right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Which... You never saw that. Up to this point, you hadn't seen that at all, like, in front of, like, major witnesses. Yeah, no, it's usually in his own company, on his own, he's alone, but yeah, no, never, yeah, no, never in front of other people. Yeah, so you've got this amazing scene that kicks off, and then the wolfman jumps around for a little bit and passes out. Yeah. What the, what the heck? (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, well, we'll have to wait till morning for this to pass pass away. For him to change back, I guess is what yeah. I'm Like, all right. I'm like, okay. Well, that was kind of lame. Yeah, yeah. Would have rather seen him, like, rip the bars off the cage and the police have to restrain him or something. Yeah, I nope. don't know. Nope, they just leave him there. They're like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> he'll be fine till morning. Yeah. Is he just, like, so despondent that he knew he wasn't going to get through the bars? Like, I'll just go take a nap now. <laughs> well, I mean, even the scene where he is the wolf in the cave when the doctor is trying to save him from after right. after trying to commit suicide, he very nonchalantly comes out of it and says, oh, I could have killed you. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, now that scene, that scene I found interesting because on its surface, yeah. it looks stupid because, oh, the clouds went over the moon and, and what is this, the movie Van Helsing now with Hugh right. Jackman where, oh, I'm not a wolf anymore. Oh, the cloud goes away. Now I'm a wolf again. But I, I took that scene in a different interpret. I took a different interpretation of that scene, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. In, in that scene, and we're, we're jumping ahead, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, which, first of all, when the doctor goes into the cave and the wolfman appears, I actually jumped. I didn't expect that. I thought he was going to find him unconscious, so that was yeah. cool. Then the wolfman grabs him. Instead of ripping his throat out, he strangles him. Right. But then he changes back, and I almost think that Talbot's mind in his subconscious somewhere was able to get to the surface enough when, when he made visual contact with the doctor when he realized that who he was killing was the doctor and the doctor was the one he wanted to save him talbot's personality was able to overcome the wolfman personality to not kill the doctor and force a transformation back to human yeah that makes sense yeah it makes much more sense than the clouds covering the moon well yeah (laughs) so yeah so i mean then that scene just comes up right right up after this where they lowered him down to the cave which was kind of 
interesting. I thought that was, you know, they got this crane and everything. Yeah. But yeah, so I definitely think that, that Talbot somehow was able to to resist the wolf in this instance because Edelman was too important to him. Yes. Um, which okay, that was that was cool. If you can, if we can, you know, yep. we're putting words in the writer's mouth here, but yes. all right, yeah, <laughs> we're doing good. And then they find the cave with the spores, and the doctor's like, "Oh, this is great for for growing these spores. It's the perfect, you know, temperature and humidity and all that stuff." And then they find these these stairs that are impractical that go up to the castle, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> which, impractical and dangerous. I yes. guess nobody had railings back in yes. when they made those things. But they find Dr. Nemon Skeleton and the Frankenstein monster who had perished in the swamps in the last film. So somehow the logic is they got sucked down into the ground, <laughs> into the cave, I guess. I guess, yeah. This, this will have to revisit at least these plot points when we talk about the Frankenstein movies then because is the castle that Edelman owns the Frankenstein castle? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, uh, okay, so... Whatever. So they find the steps that lead back up to the castle. So those poor people are waiting outside, but with the crane, and they must—they never showed them, but it must have been shocked when the doctor came up behind them and said, "Hey, I'm okay. I'm over here." Yeah. <laughs> so then we cut to um an interesting scene, which I I did like this scene where we've got Melitia playing Moonlight Sonata on the piano, and that's a song you listeners everybody should know. And we're gonna go over that one when we talk about big bands in the future. But anyway, she's playing Moonlight Sonata by. Glenn Miller and she's doing um the, well this is where the Baron explains that they had previously met at a party and I thought it was a very interesting scene because he starts to hypnotize her and then she starts playing music that she's never heard before and it's bothering her but he's he's controlling her and expanding her mind you know it's it sort yeah. of seemed like an allegory to get her to think outside of her wheelhouse right so for the rest of the film, he's basically trying to convince her to get rid of the crucifix that she has around her neck because once she starts to fiddle with it, Dracula's repelled and his hold is, is somewhat broken and then she goes back to playing Moonlight Sonata again. But I thought that scene was, was well played and well shot. Yeah, I thought so too. That was that was one of the better scenes in this movie, I felt. Yeah, absolutely. And th- th- so there was kind of a theme here. It was just control. That's what Dracula's all about. But, sure. And that's what I think is where he starts to seem more charming and, and seductive. In But he has to, I guess he can't just wine and dine his women. He's got to hypnotize them. No, he's got to hypnotize them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So then, then she remembers she's supposed to give Latos a shot. And... um. She starts to do it, but then he overcomes her mind again. And then the doctor enters and says, oh, I found out, I found new antibodies and we need to do another transfusion right away. <laughs> so so um, the nurse is attending to the spores and then Melitia, you know, we, we, they, they get back to what they're doing. And Melitia still seems like she's in a trance and she walks up the impractical stone steps and almost falls off because she's just so out of it. Which, again, I'm yelling at the screen. Somebody needs to put a railing on those stairs. <laughs> but Nina follows her, and he, she sees Latos, uh, yeah, Latos leading her away and sees that he has no reflection. And I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. The way they, they did that. Mm-hmm. Um, she runs and tells the doctor, and he had basically admits, yeah, Latos is actually Dracula. And he realizes that Dracula wants Melitia, so he concocts a plan to do another transfusion to stall him. So... 
he manages to do that, even though Dracula, I think he finally gets her to pull the cross off, and he looks away, and she drops it on the ground, and he's able to look back again. Uh, the doctor starts the, the transfusion again, and this scene, I was a little confused to what was happening at first, because the doctor just sort of falls asleep, right? and I didn't, I didn't get that it was Dracula hypnotizing him until I, I kind of did research on the movie. Uh, Dracula was hypnotizing the doctor, and then he hypnotizes Nina, and I thought this was a bizarre shot. And, and from a filmmaker's point of view, maybe you can explain this to me. Sure. She's, she's standing there. The two bodies are lying on gurneys, and she steps back because Dracula's trying to, to hypnotize her, and the bodies on the gurneys are, like, blurred out for some reason. I noticed eventually, that, yeah. Yeah, and then the blur moves to her, and she passes out. See, I didn't quite get that. I, I, I didn't get why that was done. I didn't get the technique. I didn't get... Yeah, I just didn't get it. I mean, was it maybe just to illustrate what was going on in her mind and everything was starting for her was that, coming out of focus? Yeah, no, it could it could have very well been that. But I just... <clears throat> yeah, I didn't quite get why it, why it blurred out just the bodies and then went to her. Like, just... Yeah, that, that moment just for some reason didn't really translate for me. I thought that was kind of a strange choice. Yeah, that that was really bizarre. Yeah. So so then, like, as we talked about, Dracula re- reverses the blood flow, sending his blood into the doctor's body. But it wasn't a huge amount. It was just, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't like he was attached to him continually doing it. Right. Um, he turns into a bat. And like we said before, his bat form just gets bigger and bigger. Just and this thing looks like it's yep. bigger than a seagull. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the doc manages to wake up. He sees Drac moving in on Militia and tries to drive him away with a cross. And I thought at this this was the point for me where the action really started to pick up and the yes. movie amped it into high gear. Yes. You know, and you've got the clever scene where the doctor moves Dracula's coffin into the sunlight. Then he opens it up and Dracula dies. Yeah. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> just like that. Yep. I was disappointed that we didn't really get to see Dracula flex his muscles like like um Cheney did in the last movie. Yeah, no, well, again, I, th- I felt this movie was very short on Dracula. Um, for a movie that it, with the title, House of Dracula, there's very little Dracula <laughs> right. uh, in this movie. Um, yeah, and from there, it just uh, it, it just gets crazier, like I said before. There's very little everything in this movie. It's like there they is. just crammed too much in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and again, for a movie that's only an hour and seven minutes, there right. there is so much crammed in here that... I'm not really sure if that's a, it, obviously from a script perspective, but I have to wonder uh, from an editing standpoint uh, if there were any cut scenes or anything like that went on because this movie feels like it didn't really get finished. Yeah, yeah. It should have been closer to an hour and a half. At least, know? yeah. So, so then you've got the cat being scared of the doctor. And I forgot to mention at the beginning the um, when Dracula first comes into the house the and the cat doctor's is scared sleeping. Of him. Yep cat is scared of him now all of a sudden the cat is scared of the doctor right and it makes you wonder what's going on with him and he looks in the mirror and he he does have this like he has this weird fever dream and he kind of looks like he does this jekyll and hyde transformation and his reflection disappears so yeah that made me think oh so now he's a vampire okay yeah but then he doesn't really act like a vampire he doesn't no <laughs> He's more like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. So maybe it was what because he just got a little bit of Dracula's blood. He didn't get you know the full yeah the full transfusion or something. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I um, did well. I did like that scene with the mirror that you just mentioned. How his reflection yeah. 
disappearance. I like that scene a lot, actually. Yeah, it was really bizarre. And like it, you sort of go into his head because he's having these visions of the good version of him and the bad version of him sort of yeah. opposing each other. Yeah. And then I didn't quite get what was the thing with he was helping Nina with her hunchback. Yeah. He made her all happy, but then she wasn't happy, or I don't know. That was kind of odd. Yeah, I don't know. As the evil, now the evil doctor, he tries to revive the Frankenstein monster, and Nina interrupts him trying to bring him some coffee, and then all of a sudden he manages to turn normal again and um, you know, asks her, do we have enough spores for two uh, operations? And she's like, oh, we only have a batch for one. And so he basically wants to cure her. So his good side is kind of coming out here because he's yeah. he wants to do what's right. He wants to help her. She's been loyal to him for quite a few years. And which all of a sudden I just had a thought that the town of Viseria is like chock full of mad scientists and castles. There really is. <laughs> so because I'm like thinking, well, for years, oh, my God. Well, then the other Frankensteins were there, too. And oh, geez, whatever. Yeah. So. <laughs> so She's actually so empathetic that she would actually rather see Talbot get the treatment than and have her wait. She's like, I've waited this long. I can wait a little longer. And so there's no actual surgery. He just kind of he just kind of smears the spores on Talbot's head. That, that's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and somehow that's going to cure him of being a werewolf. Of being okay. a werewolf. Yeah. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Logical. <laughs> Meanwhile, the nurses are just swooning over Talbot. They love him. Yeah. He hasn't done anything. Right. <laughs> so so then Larry's in recovery, and he's sitting in a wheelchair with his bandaged head, and it just kind of reminded me of Rear Window because he's just got this sitting by the window, got this vantage point of the courtyard, and he gets to see all this craziness going on. Like, yeah, yeah. The doctor runs out, jumps onto the back of Siegfried's wagon. He's like, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So then the doctor kills Siegfried, which I thought that was kind of a, a pretty decent scene where he climbs up the back and and Siegfried's afraid to look at him and he, he's basically menacing him. I thought that was a, an interesting scene. I thought so too, yeah. Then he get he gets he kills Siegfried, gets off the thing, and now they're in the, the center of town. The cops are chasing him, the, the townspeople, the angry villagers are chasing him. And he's what's cool I liked and I, I just kind of it's a lot of my criticism with all of these movies is I just wanted a little bit more. And they did deliver on this level because he was leaping over fences and gravestones and bushes and he scales the wall of the castle to get back in. Um, I just wanted a, something a little bit more. You, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. A little, no, I, uh, maybe it's too many superhero movies. No, I felt that way too. Um, I Particularly with this movie because we got sh- because the audience... Uh, is so short change of Dracula that, uh, yeah, I wanted a bit more. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the cops chase him back to the thing. They don't actually know it's him, so when they get back there, he manages to, you know, uh, wipe, uh, comb his hair and look normal and pretend that nothing happened. They think Larry's the one that attacked him because, of course, Lionel Atwell's um, character, Holtz, witnessed it firsthand along with the others. You know, the doctor basically, after the cops leave, the doctor basically tells Talbot, you know, that he wants to fix Nina next, but if he can't, uh, oh, he he wants to fix Nina next and he'll destroy himself, but if he can't do it, he wants Larry to kill him. And um, 
the cops are on the case. The, you know, they're talking to the townsfolk, and Skelton nags his character, uh, Steinmull. He's not happy with how the cops are handling things. He gets all he gets the townsfolks all riled up, and they organize a posse, and basically they're going to go after and kill the doctor. So before that happens, we see Larry step into the full moon, and he doesn't transform. And then uh, Nina witnesses it. She goes to tell the doctor, and he's meanwhile he's busy juicing up the Frankenstein monster. And uh, he ends up killing poor Nina and breaking her neck and tossing her into the pit uh, down down the impractical stairs, I guess, is where he sent her. So then the cops come in and there's all, all, all hell breaks loose. Larry shoots the doctor, somehow killing him. So he wasn't a vampire. He was, Would you say he was just some kind of Jekyll and Hyde character with no reflection? Yeah, yeah, that uh, I, I would say so, yep. Yeah, I thought that was... Really bizarre. Uh, of course, not lo- not wanting to be left out of the party, Frankenstein monster attacks, and Larry defends himself and causes a fire to break out in the lab. Um, there was actually one scene that I really enjoyed, and this was another one that sort of gave me a, a, a chill in a good way. When the townsfolk start to barge into the lab and there's all kinds of fire and chaos, Larry turns and shouts at them, Get out! It's the Frankenstein monster! And the, the fanboy in me just leapt up and cheered, in my mind, of course, but... <laughs> What I did like about the ending was that it harked back to the original. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I just loved how it played played out because all you had to do was say it once, and they were they got the fuck out of there. <laughs> just like yeah. <laughs> so then the house burns down and collapses on the Frankenstein monster. The end. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna give my thoughts on this film first, and then Chris, you can tell us yours. I feel Frankenstein was wasted here. Didn't do anything but sit on the slab till the very end, and even then he didn't do anything when he got off the slab. Lionel Atwell was wasted here. He could have, you know, been more prominent as a character. Dracula's death was unsatisfying. There was way too much in the way of coincidence, like finding Frankenstein's body, the monster's body. I just think that I just think it was lazy writing because the writer was on his way out. Right. Um, but it was a very fun monster movie. I actually liked it much better than I remembered from before. Um, even though it was very weak and didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. <laughs> now, here's one question for you. So Larry's cured. Larry Talbot is no longer the Wolfman. But then he comes back as the Wolfman in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So would you argue that maybe the the treatment didn't take? It only lasted a little while? Yeah, that pro- that's probably the only explanation you could probably say about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, but my thoughts sort of echo yours um, in that uh, uh, I actually think everybody was wasted here. <laughs> there, were, yeah. there wasn't enough of anybody. Um, particularly, there was not enough Dracula. There certainly wasn't enough of uh, Wolfman. There certainly was not enough of uh, Frankenstein's monster. Um Frankenstein's monster and Wolfman weren't even needed in the story, but but, right. but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's a big mess, but like we said, it's it's also a fun monster it's movie. It's fun. So. I did like it better than Son of Dracula just because of how much fun this movie was and how off the wall crazy this movie was. <laughs> but, uh, right, right. We're gonna have a lot more fun when we get into the Frankenstein movies in a future episode, but. Um, so, all right, so those, those were the three films from today, Dracula's Daughter, Son of Dracula, and House of Dracula. So, folks, uh, we hope you guys at home are enjoying our primer on getting someone started in watching horror movies, and we encourage you to go out and check these films out. 
So, Chris, why don't you uh, not only tell the listeners where they can find you online, but also tell us about the cool stuff that's been going on lately with your films and scripts. Uh, yeah, you can find me on my website, which is uh, storiesmotion.com. There you'll find all my short films, music videos, commercials, etc. Um, also on Facebook at Stories in Motion, uh, Twitter and Instagram, same thing. Um, as far as what I'm working on these days, uh, not really a whole lot because of the pandemic. Um, so I haven't been really doing much by way of film production, but um, uh, my work has been touring the film festival circuit. Um, so for starters, um, when the pandemic hit, I was just doing, um, I was converting home movies I found in my house uh, that I haven't seen in like 20, in like 20 years or so. And um, I, at first I was converting the stuff just for the family. And then as I'm watching the stuff, I'm like, oh, there's a story going on here. So <clears throat> I started taking my material and reached out to friends. Then um, they donated their home movies. I found a bunch online and I made this little documentary about simpler times um, using home movies. Um, you know, obviously no filming, no actors, just using the material that came to me. And I made it into a little film, and now it's um, playing in film festivals. Um, playing this Sunday online as part of the UK Film Review Film Festival, and uh, it just got into the Shauna Shea Film Festival, which is a local one. Um, and, um, you know, and also sending out my scripts. I have a feature I'm trying to write, but I also have a short script that um, just got into Shauna Shea as well. So really that's been keeping me busy these days. Excellent, excellent. Well, that that's great. I'm so happy for you, man. Oh, that's thank so cool. you. Cool. All right. So awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show again, and I look forward to talking to you, Chris, on our next installment of the Universal Horror Movie Primer. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. Thank you again. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Then Is Now podcast. Don't forget, if you want to chime in about this episode or give us ideas for future episodes, please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, havenpodcasts.com, and listen to our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Spaghetti Westerns and Shaw Brothers films. Also, don't forget to go to wherever you download your podcasts from and leave us great reviews. That way, more people can find our shows. I'm Rigor, signing off. Class dismissed. Thank you.